Dear church family, the scriptures use a number of different metaphors to describe life. And one of these is the fact that life is a journey. We see it used throughout the scriptures. For instance, we can think of the Psalms that speak of the fact of us needing a light to to be a guide to our path in life. And children, you know that if you've been on vacation, that every journey, every vacation, maybe it's a road trip, begins begins with, it has a beginning somewhere, and it has a final destination. And we know that along the way, there could be dangers, challenges along the way. So for example, many of our Many of our grandparents, maybe great-grandparents, arrived in this nation on a boat crossing the Atlantic Ocean from, from Europe, from the Netherlands. Now, they would have boarded that ship. As they came on board, they would have been informed of the dangers that they could face across the Atlantic Ocean. But they would have also been informed of means of rescue. Here's where you're going to find the lifeboats. Here are the different flotation devices. They were pointed to where they could go. This metaphor is helpful. It reminds us that we do have a beginning. We were created. Created in the image of God. And we're going somewhere. There is a final destination. Life as we have it in front of us, day by day, which we so often get caught up in, isn't the end. There's a final destination. And along this journey, we too are exposed to dangers, challenges. Maybe they're physical dangers injure ourselves, hurt ourselves, accidents along that way. But there are also spiritual dangers, harm that can impact us for a lifetime. Lead us down paths away from the Lord rather than to Him. And it's imperative for us to know the extent of these dangers. But also, not just to know the extent of the dangers, because if we just know the dangers and we are not made aware of the means of escape and rescue, the means of hope and encouragement along the way, life would be meaningless and fruitless and pointless. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is how do we respond to messages when we do hear about them, about the dangers that we have, the, the, the challenges, the physical, spiritual dangers and when we are also exposed to the truth of the gospel, our only way of salvation, how do we respond to them? Do we respond in obedience and faith? Or was made so vividly clear on my flight here yesterday? I'm sure a number of you have flown before. You've gotten onto the airplane. You've sat down, you've buckled yourself up, and you've waited for the plane to taxi out to the runway. And as I left Grand Rapids, 
And as we were taxiing out to the runway, the stewardesses started going through their safety spiel. Here's the different means. Here's the exits for entry if, if we need to leave the, in the case of a, a landing. Here's, the, here's where the oxygen masks come down. And I was watching the people around me in the plane, watching what they were doing while the stewardesses were going through these routines. One here, sleeping. Another one there, and engaged in his movie on his iPad. Another one there, headsets on, listening to his music. Another one there, reading. Another one there, tuned out. And I asked myself the question, how many times have I heard the gospel? How many times have you heard the gospel? The message of scripture proclaimed from this pulpit And we just go on as if it's the same old, same old. Or do we pay attention? Do we listen? Do we respond in faith and obedience? For friends, our final destination is certain. There is one. We will arrive. And the question is, which destination will we arrive at? Will we arrive at that eternal place of glory, to enjoy the presence of the Lord our God forever? Or will it be a place of torment, of death, of always dying but never dead, enduring the wrath of Almighty God against sin? Friends, we are being warned along our journey in life to one of those two destinations. And the question is, how do we respond? In our passage this evening from Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, highlight from just a small segment of Israel's journey through the wilderness, the crucial danger that we face this danger of sin, our greatest enemy that is at the core of who we are, do we know what it is? Do we recognize it in ourself? Do we confess it to the Lord? But not only, it's not just enough to know about ourselves and our sin, but do we know the only remedy for sin? And that's my desire this evening, is to highlight our great need in, le- in lessons for life journey. Highlight our great need in our first point, lessons concerning sin. But on the end of the sermon, we're going to look at lessons concerning salvation and the hope that is laid out for us in this passage. So lessons for life's wilderness travels. Lessons about sin Lessons about salvation. In our passage this evening, we find Israel in the final years of her wilderness wanderings. They had been in Egypt, and they were now traveling on their way to the promised land. And maybe for those who are unfamiliar with the history of Israel, they had been enslaved in Egypt. They were in bondage, burdened 
by the taskmasters in Egypt. And the Lord had marvelously delivered them. But almost from day one, after their deliverance, what do we find Israel doing over and over again, but demonstrating an ungrateful, a complaining heart against the Lord her God? Time and time and again, the Lord had come alongside his people, wonderfully provided for them, delivered them, and over and over again, they fall into sin, into, into complaining, into a, a spirit of distrust. They had been incorporated as a nation at Mount Sinai, where the Lord, the one who had brought them out, who had heard their cry, now calls them to live for him. And he not only calls them to live for him, but he actually he gives them the very way, the manner in which they are called to serve him out of thankfulness. He gives them that moral law as a, as a guide to, and a compass for their lives. And yet it would only be a few months after that, as they stood on the edge of Canaan, ready to enter in, that they had sent in the ten spies. And this, or the 12 spies and the spies go in and they come back and they, and they affirm that, yes, the land was exactly like the Lord had promised, a land flowing with milk and honey. But there were giants in the land. There were large cities. There were, there were fortified cities. The people were strong and, they, people, and, and the Israel questioned They doubted that they would be able to enter. And then because of their unbelief, because of their lack of faith, that first generation of Israelites had to wander through the wilderness, not allowed to enter. And so they began 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And Moses now writes this book, the book of Numbers, to that second generation of Israelites, calling them to reflect on their father's past, And not to fall into the same mistakes, into the same sins as their fathers. Encouraging them to follow the Lord, to trust him, even in the most difficult of ways. But Moses did did not only write for Israel. He wrote for us today as well. We need to learn those same lessons that Israel had to learn. Lessons about sin, lessons about our need for salvation. And so our first lesson concerning sin that comes from our passage is that sin is inherently selfish. And it's rooted deep within each and every one of us. In verse 4 we read, And they, that's the children of Israel, they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Israel had just come off an amazing victory against King Arad, the Canaanite. King Arad had taken prisoners, and the Lord had graciously answered the people's request and delivered Arad into their hand. And now right now on the heels of this great deliverance, what do we find Israel doing? They're discouraged because of the way. And that word discouraged could be translated, and I think it would be better translated as they became impatient because of the way. They were losing heart. 
Now, what, what was causing them to become so impatient, or why were they losing heart because of this way? Well, in order to understand, we need to go back to the, to the story, the backstory of this event. In order to do that, we need to go to Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 21 in particular. And I'm going to let you read that on your own, but I would just want to highlight, in this passage, Moses had sent into Edom, this this land that they were now bypassing and encompassing. Moses had sent messengers into Edom. Remember, Edom were also the descendants of Esau, Jacob's older brother. And he had asked them, the Edomites, for passage through the land of Edom on their route to the land of Canaan. It would have been a much shorter route. It would have been a much more convenient route. It would have been a a route that would have allowed access to the fresh water of the wells of the Edomites, possibly allow them to buy food that they did not normally have access into the wilderness. But in the providence of the Lord, Edom would not grant them permission. And so the route that Israel was now forced to take was a route that was longer a route that was filled with more significant dangers and challenges. And now in our portion today, as they bypass, as they encompass the land of Edom, they became discouraged. They became impatient. And in becoming impatient, they begin to question the Lord and his providential dealings. Maybe they were saying things, it would have been so much easier if we could have gone through the land of Edom. We would have had access to fresh water, to food. Friends, discontentment in one area of life often tends to breed discontentment in other areas of life. Discontented because of the way. Why were they discontented because of the way? Because they were discontented with the lack of provision. As we see in verse 5, they were complaining about food, no bread, no water, and they were hating this bread that the Lord was providing for them. And they'd rather go back to Egypt and die there. Have you ever, as you examine your own life, as I examine mine, have you ever seen this pattern in yourself? Discontentment breeding further discontentment. Maybe you've even verbally expressed it. Dissatisfied with the Lord's providential dealings with you. If you had had your own way in your life, things would have gone so much different. But notice where these complaints revolve around. For the Israelites, as you examine your own life, where do they revolve around? For the Israelites, it was in the plural. Second person Our souls, or we loathe this light bread. We. And friend, how often as we examine our own complaints, I, oh, I wish I could have had that, or if only I, me. This is the nature of sin. Sin revolves around me. What I want for my life, for my circumstances. How bad my circumstances are. How much better they could have been in my own life. 
And so from our hearts, friends, by nature, we raise up a multiplied numbers of complaints against the Lord. If this had happened or if that had happened, we can go to our family lives. We can go to our business dealings. We can go to our personal lives. We can go to the life of the nation. We can go to our walk with the Lord. The point is this, sin is inherently selfish. And when we become impatient, when we become short with the Lord and his dealings with us, it's like we're taking our fists and we're holding it up at God and saying, Lord, thou dost not know what thou art doing. We wonder if he knows. But friends, like every other sin that's rooted within us, it never stays here. It will soon fester out and pour out, as, as the proverb demonstrates, for out of the issues of the heart, the mouth speaks. But like every, and so Israel does open her mouth and speaks against God and his servant Moses. Which leads us to our second lesson concerning sin. Sin is a defiant rebellion against God. The heart will express itself. In verse 5, we read, And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of the Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. Their defiant rebellion is demonstrated in, I think, two primary ways. First, it questions the very character of God. Note how the verse begins, and the people spake against God. These are the same people that, in verse 2, vowed a vow unto the Lord. And we see a change in how they refer to the Lord. In verse 2, it's, they vowed a vow unto the Lord in all capital letters, the covenant name of Jehovah. The one who, who heard them in their cries, who had made covenant with them, had, a, had rescued them in their bondage. And now as they fell into sin, as they, as they complained against God in his dealings, they refer to him, they spake against God. Elohim in the Hebrew the mighty one, the powerful one, the, the great one, the one who, who does what he, he does because of who he is. And it's as if they're raising up their fists and saying that the Lord was being a capricious with them. They were questioning his ability to lead them, his motives for doing what he was doing in their lives. But secondly, their open defiance of the Lord not only questioned the very character of God, but it questioned his very dealings with them, his good dealings with them. In their rebellion, they questioned why the Lord had even brought them out of the land of Egypt. Would it not have been better, they said, if we had died in Egypt? Why did you bring us out of this land into the wilderness? Their memory was absolutely short. Life had been oppressive in Egypt. They were failing to remember how they had cried to the Lord and how he had heard them and he had remembered his covenant with them and had delivered them. And friend, isn't this true with all sin? It forgets about who God is and even suggests that he doesn't even exist. When you fall into sin, 
Maybe it's you're sitting behind the computer and there's the temptation to go to websites that are not good. At that point, do you reflect and remember that the Lord is everywhere present? He sees everything you do. Or do you act and pursue sin thinking that he doesn't see you? Thinking that you can hide from him what you're doing? Or maybe it's on the job site and the swear words come out of your mouth. Did you forget that the Lord hears? Doesn't he say in the Psalms, one who has made the ear, does he not hear? Friend, in our sin, we forget who God is and even suggest that he does not exist. But not only do, we question, do they question his deliverance, they also question his provision. In fact, they not only questioned his provision, they detested his provision. They hated, they loathed this manna that he was providing for them day by day. The word detested or loathed has the idea of it. They saw as worthless and contemptible. Friend, our selfish, sinful hearts by nature will express itself in defiant rebellion against the Lord. Every time we grumble, complain about the good things that the Lord gives to us, it's as if we are questioning his ability to care for us, questioning his authority, his sovereign rule in our lives. Is there an area in your life where you question what God is doing? Maybe it's questions that sound like this, why, why do I have to put up with this hardship? Wouldn't it have been better if this or this had happened? Maybe it's even a discontentment with a good blessing that the Lord gives to us, and we become dissatisfied with it, and we want more or something else. Friend, in our discontentment, our complaints, our sin, we challenge the Lord. We lift up ourselves above him as, as if we are God and demonstrating our desire to be in control of our lives. But this leads us to our third lesson concerning sin. God will not be mocked. He will never give his glory to another. And so the third lesson regarding sin is that sin is deadly. It leads to death and destruction. In verse 6, we read, And the Lord, he didn't respond with answers or questions, uh, words to the Israelites in their complaint, but we do hear his judgment coming. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And much people of Israel died. The Lord, the covenant-keeping God, the one who is holy, will never overlook sin. He cannot bypass it. Oh yes, he is incredibly long-suffering. But he can never overlook sin. 
Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And this is what we see in our text. In the midst of their continued and renewed, ongoing grumbling and complaining, in the face of their open rebellion before the Lord, he comes with his judgment. Fiery serpents, venomous snakes came in among the people and they bit the people. Over and over, one Israelite after another is being bitten. And soon the venom, the the poison coursed through their veins. The snakes were indiscriminate. An elderly Israelite here, a young mother there, a little boy there. No one was exempt. And friend, this this is what our sins deserve. When we are separated from the Lord, when we are living on our own, on our own account, like the venom of snakes, the effects of sin, the curse of, the, of our sin courses through our lives, and it will lead to death. And it doesn't matter if you are a young person here, a little boy or a girl, teenager, or whether you're an older member who has been here all your life. It doesn't matter if you've lived an, an outwardly moral life, or whether you have been caught up in gross outward sin. Sin is rooted out in all of our hearts, and it impacts every aspect of us. And by nature, we have no desire for God to rule over us. We raise up our fists at him, Friends, if our sin is not dealt with in Christ Jesus, it will lead to death. Eternal death. Forever separated from the Lord and any hope of eternal life. But friend, if it's going to be well with us for eternity, it will only be because of the covenant faithfulness of our God. Where he not only reveals to us our sin. But he reveals the way of salvation. He cannot overlook sin. And because of this fact, that means that sin must be dealt with. And it's either going to be dealt with by ourselves for an eternity, experiencing his wrath upon us, if we never turn to Jesus Christ. Or it's going to be dealt with in another, in his beloved son, the Savior. But we need to come and recognize our sin for what it is. And this is what we see in our last lesson concerning sin in our passage. Sin must be confessed. It must be acknowledged for what it is before the Lord. If it's going to be well for us. We must come to acknowledge before God that sin is our sin. With David, we need to be able to cry, I have sinned against thee, thee only have I sinned. And this is the cry of the people in verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. We have sinned. As we consider the, the people's confession of their sin before the Lord, we, we want to notice two things. First, we see that they see sin for what it really is. 
The word that's translated here as sin is the, is the primary word for sin in the Old Testament. And it has the idea of missing the mark. It's used in other contexts in terms of an archer who has shot an arrow at a target and missed, missed his mark. And the Israelites are saying, we have missed the mark that God had called us to live by. We have missed the standard that he has established that was right and good. We have missed the mark of loving God above all and our neighbors as ourselves. They acknowledge that the way they have been living was not in accordance with his law. They see their selfish desires, their motives as sin. They see their complaint against God as sin. They see their complaint against his servant as sin. They see that they have been replacing the one true God with the idols of their own hearts and their imaginations. Have you come, have I come to see my sin? Have you come to see your sin as sin? As missing the mark of God's holy law for our lives? Sins of wasted time? Sins of ignoring his precious word? Sins of complaining even even about the food that mom made for dinner? Sins of speaking ill or gossiping of another person in the church. Sins of not acknowledging that the Lord is in control and letting this be worked out in the way we live our lives. Sins of disrespect for authority. Sins of pornography. Sins of, and the list could go on and on and on. Have we seen that our sin is sin against the Lord? the small so-called respectable sins to the large sins of society? Have we seen them as missing the mark for what God has established as good and right for our lives? But secondly, we, we come to see that Israel not only acknowledged their sin as missing the mark and recognizing sin for what it is, they also recognize that their sin was against the Lord, against their covenant-keeping God, against the one who is full of grace and compassion, against the one who has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, against the one who delights to show mercy. Have, Have I, have you, saw your sins as against a God who is very good, against the one who has made the heavens and the earth, against the one who has created you and continues to uphold your very being? Have you sinned that your sin is against one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger? Oh, then come, come and bow before him, confess your sin before him, call upon him, for in him is salvation. In him there is hope which we will see in our second thought, lessons concerning salvation. Sin is that poison that flows through each of us. And if it's not dealt with, if we do not have the appropriate antidote, it will be not well for us for eternity. We are in desperate need. But the Lord in his mercy and grace not only provides an awareness of our 
struggle or challenge or issue, but he provides hope and a way of escape. In verse 8, we see our first lesson. And this first lesson concerning salvation is that salvation is an act, is a sovereign act of the Lord. It's a one-sided act from our God. Verse 8 reads, And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. Those are beautiful words. And the Lord said. This story could have stopped at verse 6. It could have ended there. And the Lord would have been perfectly just to have let Israel die off in the wilderness. But we have this gracious statement. And the Lord said. The Lord speaks into this dark situation and demonstrates that salvation, any hope, will only be from him. It is only because he spoke to Moses that there is hope. It is only because he speaks to us through his word that there is hope for us every day. Salvation is the initiative of our triune God, who from before the foundations of the world has already chosen a people to redeem to himself. But already before the foundation of the world, the very way of salvation was being planned, was planned. And we see this plan being worked out here and the sovereignty of our God in it. In our verse, we see this in the two imperatives or the two commands that the Lord gives to Moses. He says to Moses, make, make thee a fiery serpent, but just don't make it, set it up on a pole. The plan was not conceived by Moses. Who would have thought of raising up a, a, something that looked like the very thing that was bringing death into the midst of the camp? To raise it up as a means of, of hope and of healing. God's way of salvation must come to fruition His plan must be worked out. The imperatives or the commands in this verse demand it. God's way of salvation cannot and will not be thwarted. The snake must be made. It must be lifted up so that all who look at it and behold it will live, will be made whole. And friends, from before the beginning of time and and in the fall of our father Adam into sin, The Lord has been revealing to us, bit by bit, what this way of salvation was going to look like. We see it in seed form in that first promise in Genesis 3.15. And as we scan through the scriptures, we see with greater detail what this Savior is going to look like, what forgiveness is going to look like, what atonement is going to look like. And we see the full fruition of it come to all together at the cross God's way of salvation would come, had to come to fruition. Jesus had to come into this world as a little baby boy. He had to grow up like every other boy without any sin. He had to suffer. He had to die. He had to go to the cross. He had to be lifted up into the pla- in the place of sinners. 
This is the second lesson concerning sin or salvation. Salvation requires a substitute like us. The Lord in his, in his grace not only sovereignly declared the way of salvation, but he provided the way. Moses instructed, was instructed to make this serpent and to set it on a pole. The serpent had to be formed and had to be set up, lifted up. The likeness of the very thing that brought the curse of death into the camp, the venomous snake, was now being raised up for healing for all who looked. In the scriptures, snakes are not, are generally represented as evil, sinister, bad. And yet now the very thing that represented death, the curse, was being lifted up as, a, as the hope of salvation. And this is what Jesus brings our attention to in John chapter 3, verse 14, when he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Just as the snakes brought death and the curse of death upon the Israelites, so the likeness of it had to be raised up. In like manner, just as we as humanity have brought sin and the curse of death and death into this world because of our sin, so one like us had to be lifted up, had to be raised up. So that any who look to him can be made perfectly whole. As one author says, the object of faith resembled the curse in the case of the snakes. And so Jesus resembled the curse in that he took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh, gave himself over to death, taking upon himself the sins of his people so that people like you and I can look to him and be made whole. But it wasn't just enough that Jesus went to the cross. Just it wasn't enough that he suffered and died. Now as we see in our, in our last thought, regarding salvation, salvation must be appropriated. That's a big word. Let me explain. That is... A sinner must, by faith, believe that what the Lord Jesus accomplished on the cross is personally for them, appropriating to oneself the finished work of Christ. And we see this in verses 8 and 9 of our passage. We read, And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. And so Moses made a serpent of brass, he put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent, he lived. Friend, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. And it has a beautiful gospel invitation. If anyone had been bitten, if anyone had the poison of the snakes coursing through their veins, they were encouraged to look and be made whole. The look didn't depend on how close they were to the, to the pole. It didn't matter whether they had just been bitten or they, had been, they were moments away from death. 
It didn't matter if someone had helped them to get into position to see the pole. It didn't matter if they were far away or near. No, if they were bitten and they looked, they were made perfectly whole. No, just because the way of salvation is present did not guarantee that salvation was experienced. And then we come to church Lord's Day after Lord's Day. We read the scriptures. We, it's not enough just to read the scriptures. It's not enough to have been born into a Christian family. It's not enough to go to church on a regular basis. It's not enough to go to a Christian school. It's not enough to have parents who are believers. No. Each of us need to believe and to trust personally in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. This is what Jesus said as he continued in John chapter 3 verse 15. He said that whosoever, so the Son of Man had to be lifted up so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We are called to look. To look to him. And no, we are not saved because of our look. But we are saved. We are made whole because of who Christ is. Because of the object of our faith. We look to him. We must look. But it's not dependent on how strong our look is. It's not dependent on how clear our eyes are. It's not dependent on how, how strong of a look we have of the Savior. It's not dependent on how much you or I have sinned. It's not dependent on how much we've tried to remedy our lives, make it better. How much we've prayed or read the Bible or tried to put, reform our lives. But have we looked? Have we looked at the Lord Jesus Christ? Friend, there's nothing that we contribute to our salvation in terms of being made whole. But by faith, we are called to behold the Lamb of God. We are to turn our eyes from ourselves, from our sin, to the great curse reverser, to the sin reverser, to the great antidote for sin, the Lord Jesus. We are to turn our eyes and behold the one who came in full humanity, the one who is very God and very man, the one who was lifted up on that Roman cross, who hung there and died, who was buried, who rose again, who now sits at his Father's right hand. We are called to look at him. Have you turned and gazed? Have you believed on the only begotten Son of God? Have you experienced the forgiveness of sins? Have you been made whole? As much as I would like to believe that every Israelite who had been bitten looked at that pole and was made whole, I think it would be very wrong if I believed that. Verse 9 says that, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld, it was only when he looked, when he beheld, suggests that there were those who did not make the conscious decision to turn and look at that brazen serpent that was raised up on the pole. There were probably men, women, boys, girls, who had been bitten by the snakes, who were succumbing to the poison that was wreaking havoc in their bodies, and they refused to look. 
Maybe they ask the question, what's the use? How's a look going to make any difference? At a brazen serpent. Maybe they thought they needed to get a little closer. Maybe they thought they needed, they, they needed to try all the other known antidotes before they would do this. Friend, whatever it was, it kept them from looking to that serpent on the pole. It kept them from healing. And maybe, maybe some of you are thinking, what a bunch of fools. They could have looked and they would have been made whole. And yet, are there not those here tonight who have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Who are still living among us in our midst? Who are still living in sin? Still enjoying your sin? You've never looked to the Lord Jesus Christ? You've never trusted in him? And maybe you have some similar excuses. How is believing going to change anything? Let me try other things first. Friend, what keeps you from looking? What keeps you from gazing on the Lord Jesus Christ, from believing on him? Might it be that you have never really come to see your sin as sin? Have not seen yourself as a selfish sinner before Almighty God? You've not seen the fact that by nature we are living in open rebellion against Him? That by nature we are worthy of death and not of mercy? And because of that, you continue on in your sin, enjoying it maybe? But the Lord in His grace and mercy has lifted up his beloved son that all who believe in him will be saved. Friend, come and look. This way of salvation is God's gracious gift to lost mankind. And yes, maybe there's some who say, well, I can't look. That's what the Lord, the Lord needs to open my heart and my mind. True, but yet you must look. Pray for the Spirit. We pray for the Spirit to be working right now, pouring into our hearts and lives the desire, the, the willingness to look. But you must look. You must set your gaze upon Christ and believe that he is the one who can forgive your sins. And so, friend, look and live Or are you going to be like the people on the, the airplane who are just going about, they've heard the message multiple times, and it just, they were tuning it out. Not for me today, maybe another day when it's more important. Friend, Jesus, the word of God tells us to look. And that's my encouragement to you, look and live. That you may know for certainty 
that your final destination will be a most secure, a most enjoyable place to be. Amen.